Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of 10 Talks, I speak with Professor Michael Lynch. Dr. Lynch is the Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut. Professor Lynch has many accolades, and I'm certainly not going to do justice to his full bio here. Among other things, he is the Director of the Humanities Institute at the University of Connecticut and the Director of the New England Humanities Consortium. His work concerns truth, democracy, public discourse, and the ethics of technology. Professor Lynch's work has either appeared in or been profiled in magazines such as the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, and Wired Magazine, among others. And he's also spoken at the TED Conference on MSNBC and many other television outlets as well. In this episode, I speak to Professor Lynch about his most recent book entitled Know-It-All Society, Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. The book essentially explores how digital culture, and offline culture more generally, is fostering an attitude of intellectual arrogance among the American public, and having an overall detrimental effect on contemporary politics. I think that this book could not be more timely. And it's also worth mentioning that the book is geared towards a general audience. It's not a specialized philosophy book. I really enjoyed it and think it's an extremely important book that everyone should go out and buy. I'm going to embed a link to where you can buy the book in the show notes, and I'll also include some links to some other content from Professor Lynch. I really enjoyed the conversation and appreciate the professor taking the time to have it with me. So, without further ado, I give you the philosopher of truth, Professor Michael Lynch. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. storm coming, Mr. Wayne. In the book, you talk about how digital culture and offline culture more generally is impacting politics. And you emphasize at the beginning of the book that this isn't a human this is a human problem it's not a technical one how you know we can reimagine our digital platforms but ultimately we're going to have to change our attitudes and the attitude that you focus on a lot in the book is intellectual arrogance so first i thought you could just define what you mean by intellectual arrogance and talk about how it becomes tribal how this attitude can become what you call tribal Okay, so intellectual arrogance is the attitude and you're right to say that i i call it an attitude the attitude of thinking that your worldview is unimprovable by evidence or experience from other people. That is, it's the attitude that people have when you fall into thinking that you've got something all figured out, that uh, you know, as it were, it all about that topic, or at least all that there really needs to be known about that topic, and that uh, nobody has anything to teach you. That's 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 arrogance. And that's, you know, I mean, we all can recognize that in our bad days as things that we can fall into. And Mm -hmm. it's a human it's a human uh, attitude that that uh, we all have familiar familiarity with uh, in our daily life. Right. So that itself is what I mean by intellectual arrogance. And and I call it intellectual arrogance, not because it's about the arrogance of uh, intellectuals, although, you know, God knows intellectuals can be plenty arrogant. (laughs) It's, it's that, uh, it's, it's, it's called intellectual arrogance because it's arrogance about matters concerning the intellect, about your opinions, about what you think, you know, your your worldview, as I say. And 
that attitude, as you pointed out in your question, I think is most dangerous when it can when it goes tribal. And an attitude can go tribal when any attitude, any psychosocial attitude, and that's what what I mean by an attitude, it's a psychosocial mental state, can go tribal when it becomes indexed to a uh, to a, a particular group and or directed at a group. So contempt is something that linked to arrogance, for example, that we can often see as something that's tribal. One group has a attitude of contempt towards another group. Uh, and that too is a very dangerous thing and very much linked to this attitude of arrogance. Put it bluntly, when intellectual arrogance goes tribal, it becomes the uh, the, the question or that it becomes the attitude rather that all we, we know more than they do. We right. have it figured out, they don't. Uh, and that of course supports a type of politics, a politics not just of us over them, but I mean, us versus them, but us, of us over them. Right. Yeah. So in chapter two, you talk a lot about how digital culture is encouraging this know-it-all society or tribal arrogance. So I just thought I could uh, we could run through just a couple of important concepts uh, pertinent to digital culture. Sure. Uh, one one quote that I like from the neuroscientist Molly Crockett. She says, "If moral outrage is like fire, then social media is like gasoline." Um, yeah. So one of the first terms that you discuss in this chapter is Google knowing. Mm -hmm. um, so first, what exactly do you mean by Google knowing? So Google knowing is a concept that um, uh, I've explored uh, at greater length, uh, just so listeners can uh, get some context in another book called The Internet of Us. And in that book um, and in this book, I understand Google knowing as knowledge that is or knowledge that is acquired via digital interface. So it's not just knowledge that's acquired uh, on Google, although that's I call it that because, frankly, most of us, when we acquire knowledge via digital interfaces, are using either the platform that, you know, that Google supplies itself or mm -hmm. apps that are built right on right. Uh, on the Android platform. I mean, not to say that there aren't apps that are built on different platforms, but that's a highly dominant way for us to interact with information on, on the internet. And so it's use, useful uh, to call it Google knowing. So the paradigm case, but not the only case of Google knowing, is you know looking something up on Google or asking Google a question. Um, we, we, if we're lucky, when we do that, we acquire information that's true and which is um, coming from a reliable source. And if all those things happen to fall into place, and as you know, they don't always, in fact, many times do not, <laughs> uh, we, but when they do, we could really call it knowing, and it's a particular type of knowing. Google now. And I can say more about the epistemological details of this, but that's the basic overview. Yeah. And I don't want to get dragged too far back into your past book, but one of the things that really hit home to me is how you explain how Google knowing is a kind of receptive knowledge, like perception. And that ultimately leads to us knowing more, but understanding less. And one of the most fascinating things in your past book that stuck out to me is that experiment that you conducted where you set out to discover certain facts without using the internet at all and yeah. realized just how astoundingly difficult it was. Yes. Um, what was one of the facts that you're trying to uh, learn? A couple of them. I mean, so, you know, there was one that was 
The easiest one uh, to figure out was not surprising. It was the what was the capital of Bulgaria? I just actually all these questions I asked myself were real questions that I wanted to actually know the answer to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one was easy to figure out without the internet because in my case I had an old atlas that was still up to date enough, a you know book in my house, and I was able to look it up. You know, no problem there. But then you know. More difficult questions like um, I wanted to know the phone number of my local congressional representative, right? That should be easy enough. So, of course, you might think you call information uh, if there even is such a thing. Uh, But, of course, anybody that you talk to uh, is going to just look it up on the Internet. So that's not allowed by the rules of the game. So I couldn't ask anybody because they were just going to look it up on the Internet. So I went to the local library for that one thinking they might have this thing that used to exist called phone books. Um, these were these books that had numbers in them back in the day. Uh, I think the Romans first uh, used these. Um, and I, I, I asked the kid behind the counter, uh, hey, um, you know, I need the number for my local congressional representative. And, and uh, he says, he didn't even look up. He's like, yeah, computers are over there. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. I can't use the internet. <laughs> he looked him up and was like, oh boy, here we go again. Old crazy guy. And I mean, that's what, and then one last example uh, is, and this is the one that really hits home. I wanted to know what was, I was going to Austin, Texas, and I wanted to know a good restaurant there. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I wanted to know like, what's the best reviewed restaurant in Austin, Texas right now? Not like a year ago. Right. Up to date. Like up to date. That's a question you wouldn't even ask without the Internet. I right. mean, they're, sure, there are travel books and stuff like that, but they're not going to give you the answer to that question because they're yeah. like a year out of date by the time you get them. So that that is a question. They're literally what that exercise showed me is that Google knowing is so sunk into the very fabric of our epistemological life right now that there are questions that we wouldn't even enter, have entertained as answerable or even reasonable uh, to, to, act, to pose that now we take for granted and we take for granted that we can get those answers. And that's a great thing. That's a plus, the plus side of Google knowing. As you know, I think there are lots of not so plus sides. Yeah. And one of the not so plus sides is this problem of algorithmic filtering that you talk about, how a lot of these algorithms are tailored to discern our patterns of online behavior and then give us content that matches our preferences. And that can lead to the creation of these epistemic bubbles and and echo chambers where it's just giving you the information that you want. Right. Exactly. So in the new book, I particularly emphasize this point. Everything that we encounter on the internet from the news that comes down our Facebook feed to uh, the ads that we read are is tailored to fit our unique preferences, preferences that have been tracked via our previous interactions on the digital platforms and the apps that we use on our phone. Right. Uh, and, and that's fantastic, right? When you're shopping for a movie to watch, right? Uh, to have, you know, it be the case that that the various platforms that you're you're interacting with are supplying the answers. In some cases, you might not even even know that you want it. <laughs> <laughs> they know your mind better than you do. Exactly. Uh, after all, Google can complete our sentences with Google Complete. Does it all the time every time you search. So uh, that's great when we're shopping for shoes or books or movies. 
Um, but it's not so great when you're shopping for facts because when you're just getting the facts that fit your pre-existing opinions, that's a recipe for uh, inflating your bubble, not for bursting it. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to uh, get into the concept of information pollution and this idea that social media is what you call a shell game. So just to quote you, you say information pollution is the dumping of potentially toxic information into the media environment. Information can be toxic in different ways, but the most obvious ways are being false, intentionally deceptive and misleading or simply not based on evidence at all. Um, so first, could you just describe the distinction maybe between lying and deception? Because I feel like that's kind of an important distinction that stuck out to me. And then talk about how social media is a shell game in the way that you describe. Sure. So you're right. The distinction between lying and deception is important because um, one can obviously lie. That is, say something that you know is false with the intention of deceiving without actually deceiving. Right. I mean, <laughs> people, somebody can lie to you. This happens, you know, and you can be like spotted a mile away and be like, you're lying to me. <laughs> so you weren't deceived. Right. So you can be somebody, you know, there's can be lying without deception. Right. There so deception is a success term. Exactly. That's exactly right. And and but of course, there can also be deception without lying. Again, lying is saying something that, you know, you believe to be false with the intention of of misleading. But I can deceive you without uh, ever a saying anything to you. I can deceive you by just, you know, uh, pointing in a different direction. I can also deceive by saying nothing. Right. I mean, this is a frequent right. way that deception is like not saying anything. All right. And, and then, you know, later back and just just not supplying some information that you needed at a particular moment. Right. Mm -hmm. In order to uh, to to hide the truth from you is is deception. Another way of dece dece deceiving, and this is the way that I talk about, I think is often very common on the the on social media and the internet in general, is that you you can become deceived by simply um, confusing. You can being confused, and so I can deceive you by simply confusing you by getting you yeah. to a point where you don't know what to believe. I may not have any particular view about what's true or false, but right. I can deceive you from that is prevent you from knowing the facts by simply um, uh, as game moving things around so quickly that you're not sure where the penny is on which shell right is hiding the penny and. Right. You, you, it's not that you believe something false. It's just that you don't know what to believe. And that's that you've just described the epistemological predicament that I feel like I'm in because I, I'm trying to make an effort to digest new sources from both sides of the aisle. You know, so like I'll, I'll listen to both sides of the aisle. But the more I do that, the more confused I get because both of the sides of the aisle just seem to be operating completely different informational universes. So it's it's not. I feel like there's no common ground that I can increasingly there's no common ground that I can find between the two different political sides. So I'll just you know, flip from one universe to the next. And they're so far apart that I just don't even know what's true anymore. And so it's like the more bipartisan I try to get, the more confused I get in a weird way. And I don't know how to solve the problem. I think, I, I think that is a huge problem. I and mean, you put yourself on one of the really big challenges to not just our democracy, but many democracies around the world right now. 
Uh, you're no doubt, I mean, this the last few weeks, uh, Gary, with the impeachment, have really brought this epistemological uh, this uh, problem into into really stark relief. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for anybody that's spent some time flipping back and forth between, let's say, Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity or just Fox News and CNN. The description of what's happening um, actually in the impeachment process, uh, just the actual facts of what is happening are are radically different. And of course, even when those the description of the actual events are not different. The interpretation of consequences of those events are radically different. And, you know, this is a big problem for a lot of people. Now, it's true that a lot of people are not also in a different sort of issue, right? We've talked about two different problems. One is, for a lot of people, they're just happily in their bubble, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it would be easier if I could just consume one side. I would be so certain. They're they're busily right uh, helping to construct their bubble uh, via the 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 preference building nature of the internet right the algorithms together with their own preferences are just further and further uh, uh, you know making their bubble uh, stronger and more impervious to outside popping as it were um, so uh, that's one problem. The problem that we're, we're talking about now is for when people actually do try to get outside of their bubbles self-consciously, uh, self-consciously and they begin to realize that, wait a second, there's all these bubbles and they're sort of opaque. And I don't know which one, you know, I really don't know which of them hides a reliable mechanism or not. I mean, I think there is, that is a reliable source. I think, you know, for a lot of, you know, in the case of, uh, say, politics, I think the thing that people need to do is to realize is to not just think about watching both sides, but trying to figure out uh, how, let's say, different sources, right, um, uh, came into being, what their motivations were, and uh, whether, for example, those sources and their claims can be verified by other sources. Right. That, let's say, may not be have the same motivations or um, uh, financial incentives. So that's a long, complicated way of let me give you an example or your listeners example. Mm -hmm. So um, Steve Bannon, um, former White House uh, chief of staff, uh, all around right wing uh, uh, troublemaker, essentially, is. Uh, currently started up um, a podcast uh, in the basement of his house, which is about uh, in the impeachment. Mm. And he's claiming to supply the facts about impeachment from the basement of his house. Now, I think it's not going to take a rocket scientist to know that whatever you think, whether you're a Trump supporter or not, maybe Steve Bannon might have some ulterior motivations uh, and motivations that are not completely oriented towards presenting a a objective view of this matter, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, not as much even as let's say take the Fox News. I'm not talking about Sean Hannity, but actual just the news on Fox or the news on CNN. But obviously, those two um, sources have pretty distinct uh, political um, uh, filters. 
But in the case of the, both of those news organizations, or the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, very, very, um, very conservative, New York Times, liberal. The thing is, however, is that they do have some motivation to try to present some type of objectivity, where Steve Bannon has no motivation at all. He doesn't have the fact, because those, two or, those organizations I just mentioned will, are hoping to persist even after Trump is dead and gone. Right. right. And all of us, right, us are, are, you know, technology changes. They have motivations to try to keep up their reputations. I, I'm not saying that they do a particularly good job about that. But notice that somebody like Steve Bannon or Breitbart or the Daily Stormer or et cetera, et cetera, these sorts of sites are not. They're motivated purely out of political considerations. And those are things that your listeners really need to keep in mind. In mind. So I hope that was a long digression, but I hope it was helpful. Yeah, no, it's very helpful. Um, so in addition, so we've been talking about information pollution and how that can kind of encourage this know-it-all culture. Another way that digital culture can encourage this kind of intellectual arrogance is via what you call emotion sharing, right? So you talk about how mm-hmm. um, it's a really interesting hypothesis. Most people think that the primary function of sharing content on social media is to make assertions or to transfer knowledge between their friends. But as you said, you say that, no, actually, the primary function is to share emotions such as outrage and stuff like this. And you talk about how many different things can have uh, things can have different functions. Right. So one really helpful analogy for me in the book is this basketball analogy with people shouting air ball, right? If someone shouts air ball, the primary function of that is to distract the person who's shooting the free throw. But right. it could have other functions as well. It could accurately describe what actually, in fact, happens. Someone shoots right. an air ball. It could be a prediction, right? So there are fun- many different functions that things have, and there are, then there's the primary function. You say, like, yeah, maybe making assertions is one function that sharing content social media has, but the primary one is emotion sharing. What I guess, what's your evidence for that claim or what makes you think that that claim is true? So uh, before I answer the great question and before I I answer the direct question about what the evidence is, um, let me just uh, uh, just add a a little bit more uh, context about what I'm sharing. I think you described it beautifully, but just so people are clear, the sort of content that you and I are talking about right now is is the sharing of news content, or at least content that is purporting to be news. Um, So I limit my attention to that. I mean, one reason for that is because it's pretty obvious that for things like when we share pictures of each other, (laughs) right, or we share pictures of of kittens, right, we're pretty much (laughs) engaging in not really testimony or assertion, but we that's like on the surface, obviously, emotionally balanced, right? I mean, that whole right. point is to make each other laugh or, you know, uh, provoke some other sort of emotion, like, ah, right? You know, or something like that. Um, and uh, so, so you know, the, the claim that I'm making wouldn't be interesting if we were talking about that stuff. What's mm. the reason it's interesting, as you said, is that when we, on the other hand, when we're sharing some story we read, or a, a, you know, which is what's relevant to when we're talking about, let's say, the issue of fake news, we're talking about when we're sharing those things. What we think we're doing is engaging in what philosophers sometimes call testimony. That is, we're testifying to the veracity, or at least the interest, of this particular piece. We're recommending it, or asserting that it's justified or or plausible or something. So, just as you said, yes. Yeah. So. Why is it? Do I, why do I think that's not really what we're doing? 
Well, um, I think the evidence splits into two parts. One part of the evidence has to do with what we don't do online with these this news content that we share, and the other thing has to part has to do with what we do do. So what we don't do is we don't tend to read what it is that we share when we share these stories. Um, so recent studies that I talk about in the book uh, indicate that um, at a minimum, sixty percent of the items that are shared on the internet are not read by the people that are sharing. Uh, now, in fact, I think a lot of people, when I talk about this, lots of times, and some of your listeners may, some listeners may be shocked. Really? I, you know, because some people actually do read what they share. Uh, <laughs> news flash, most people don't. Um, and, uh, and of course, a lot of people, when I, when I share this, um, will say, well, duh, I bet you the number is actually much higher. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and and it could well be very high uh, that, in fact, people rare, rarely read what it is they're sharing, even if you define. And this is the interesting thing. Even if you define reading in a really loose way, like just clicking through to the article and spending, let's say, a second or two on it. Which right, is, they don't even uh, click on the link. Yeah. Well, yeah. So lots no, of people I mean, click on the link. And some people, uh, you know, if you define. For a number of the studies that are done on this, reading is defined as clicking through and spending some amount of time, very small amount of time, on the page. Okay. Uh, so it really means reading in this context sort of means what, you know, a lot of uh, <laughs> college students might mean when they say they read the article. <laughs> <laughs> very loose definition. <laughs> I mean, not busting on it, you know, but, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, – so, so what we don't do is we we don't read what we're sharing. If we were if we were engaging in this type of testimony, right? You know, if we were really actually seriously recommending item of, of information to people, you would think we would read what it is we were. Te- it's hard to testify to something if you don't know what it is you're testifying. Right? Mm-hmm. A basic uh, piece of evidence. The other piece of evidence is that what concerns what we do do with this this. Uh, this information. What we do do is we we tend to share items uh, in, that are uh, provocative, emotionally provocative. And evidence for that is actually uh, quite uh, there, there, it's quite large. There's a lot of evidence to suggest from all sorts of sources. This suggests that the best one of the best predictors, and in some ways the best predictor of whether uh, a, uh, an item will be, uh, a post will be shared or retweeted, is that the post contains emotionally provocative and particularly morally emotionally provocative uh, content. Either that, that kind of language will get more clicks? Exactly, exactly. And, and I think any of us that spend time on social media know this. Right. I mean, it's not, again, rocket science. You know, like people yeah. who spend time on social media, which is most people now, <laughs> you know that if you want to get your piece shared or retweeted, you got it. You know, saying something outrageous is going to help out. Yeah. Know? Saying something like this. Um, this is a very interesting article that raises some very subtle points. That's <laughs> not so much like, you know, but saying something like, this politician is a killer, right? right? Share if you agree. 
right? <laughs> right? That'll get people's that'll, attention. Right, I'll get people's attention. And and so, you know, but particularly important are these terms, especially with regard to news items. The ter- the news items that get shared are those that where the posts include some sort of term that um that produces outrage. So terms like murder, for example, right? Yeah. Those are those are powerful moral emotionally salient terms for us. When we see those sorts of words, we, you know, we we react to them in an emotional way. And so what that what does that suggest? Well, that suggests that um, what we're if you put those two pieces of information together, that we don't read what we're sharing. And when we do share are things that get us emotionally riled up. What that together, I think, suggests is that this hypothesis is heading in the right direction. That actually what we're doing when we're sharing these news items are, is not engaging in testimony, but actually engaging in an emotional expression uh, mm-hmm. in a way that and, – and, or at least to put it more precisely in the way that you did and I do in the book, that the primary function of sharing these news uh, items is to uh, – is expressive rather than descriptive. Um, yeah. So. And another p- another piece that's related to all this is a lot of these so- these social media sites are designed in such a way that they encourage the emotion sharing with the emoticons. You know, you can have the smiley face, you can have the frowny face. Yeah. A really interesting thought experiment that you laid out at the end of the chapter is: What if we reimagine the design features of these social media sites, where instead of emoticons, we had something like justified by the evidence, not justified by the evidence, need more information? Maybe that would change the incentive structure in a way so as to encourage people to become more reflective. But in the end, you say, actually, I don't think this would really solve the problem just by changing the surface design features. Could you just say a little more about why that's the case? Yeah. So that's an actual example that comes from I actually made that that uh, suggestion to um, some executives of some digital platforms in an informal setting. That's a good idea. And I thought it was a good idea then. Too, um, but uh, for reasons that I'll say in a moment, I'm not sure it's it, it would be hard to implement. And but just to sort of give you a sense of what the reaction was when when I raised this this suggestion in the setting that I did, um, the gathered experts there were they thought I was hilarious. They thought I was making a joke. Uh, um, and they thought it, they actually thought it was so funny that like one of them had gone to the bathroom and when the person come back, they were like, say it again, say it again. <laughs> That's insane. They thought it was so not yet. And so I think half of them thought I was just self-consciously making a joke. And that the other half thought I was so cutely naive that it was just, you know, hilarious. Um, so actually I've come to think that they were right to laugh. Um, so again, the suggestion would be replace the, the emoticons and the badges with uh, justified by the evidence, not justified by the evidence, need more information. Those are the yeah. three choices. Now, the reason I think that wouldn't work, uh, or at least not for very long, is because if my hypothesis about emotional sharing is right, that the primary function of sharing these things online is uh, to express our emotion, if I'm right about that, or that mm-hmm. hypothesis were to pan out, then I think you would predict on the basis of that hypothesis that, and you could, I mean, this is an empirical question, but I would predict, I encourage, I've been encouraged people to figure it out, but I predict that if we were to do that, that fairly quickly, those, those buttons 
would be start to be used in an expressive way rather than in a descriptive way. In other words, justified by the evidence would be start start people would actually start to use it in a way to express uh, yay this, right? Yay, right. and then boo, and uh, sort of yeah. like indifference, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. right, right, and and no matter what the words were, that's how they would start to use that uh, that that uh, those buttons, and and you know, in much the same way that um, you know, airball, as you said, is is primarily, I mean. Airball, it doesn't really matter what the term is, right? You could shout anything. That's yeah. sort of, right? I mean, yeah. the term is not really, you know, that's why sometimes people just wave things, right? At the same time, in front, in the, so that the, the visual uh, distraction is meant to distract the guy trying to shoot a free throw. The point is, is that uh, the words can end up meaning one thing, but we can use them in an expressive way that isn't correlated with the way the words mean. So unfortunately, I think without redesigning the digital economy, um, the structure of the platforms, just merely making a fix like that is not going to help. Yeah. So I guess that's, yeah, the fundamental problem is that the digital economy rewards emotion sharing. So we would just need to reimagine like the very root of it in some way. Exactly. I'm just, I'm just, yeah. I mean, think about Facebook. Facebook is not a platform that a lot of, you know, my, my daughter is a 13. I mean, she doesn't use Facebook. That's for old people. But here, the fact is, is that Facebook is the dominant platform, right? Mm. It, it, and it owns the other, many of the other dominant platforms, right? right. Um, I mean, Twitter uh, is tiny, tiny compared to Facebook, like, like a little, little bit, right? Facebook mm. is the dominant social media platform. And so the reason I emphasize that is that, you know, if you're going to do this, you'd have to, it's Facebook that really um, is, is the thing that needs to change first. And one problem there is that Facebook on its face, what is their, what is their, you know, Zuckerberg's whole point uh, in defending Facebook is he says, Facebook is designed to connect us. That's its slogan. And what they mean by that is not connect us. They mean connect us emotionally. Mm-hmm. What they want to do. Right. Those are the strongest sorts of connections that in the world. Right. And those, those are emotional connections between people are stronger than any other connection. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think what that suggests is that you know what we've got to start thinking about is the fact that if Facebook, which is also the place where a large plurality of the world gets its news, that we might need to start carving out aspects of Facebook that are news-driven and those that aren't. We, you know, Zuckerberg needs to start realizing that he's the company, I think, which started out as purely emotional connections, has now become a news source for people. Right. But it's still operating by that emotional connection uh, platform. And that, that is not a good combination. In fact, it's a, for reasons we've been discussing, a dangerous combination. And yeah. I think we've got to find a way to separate the one from the other. Mm. Yeah, so we've been talking about, so mindful now of your time, uh, we've been talking about how social media can kind of encourage this kind of know-it-all society. So I just wanted to get your 
uh, take on your discussion of convictions and then maybe ask a question or two about the American right and the American left, which you sure. talk about in different chapters. Um, so you talk about, yeah, social media can feed into this, but there might be something about the nature of conviction itself um, that encourages this know-it-all society. And you make a distinction between uh, beliefs and convictions. And you talk about how oftentimes beliefs can be hardened into convictions and, and how debates about matters of fact can become politicized by becoming matters of conviction. And so... First, I guess, what is a conviction before getting into the question of how beliefs can become hardened into convictions? Great. So, yeah, I think this is, in, in many ways, um, the philosophical part of the book, and I'm glad that you asked me about it. I think that uh, a conviction, to begin with, is not just a deeply held belief. Um, as I say in the book, I deeply believe that, or strongly believe, that two plus two equals four, but it's not worth calling a conviction. A right. conviction is a commitment. It's action guiding. And it's a, particularly a commitment to something that reflects our self-identity. So our convictions reflect the kind of people we are aspiring to be, the kind and the kind of tribes we aspire to belong to. Notice I use the word aspire, because, of course, we might not live up to our convictions. That's a classic problem, right? You have the courage of your convictions. So your convictions are those principles, as it were, to those that reflect values uh, that you see as things that you want to embody and exemplify, as I put it, the kind of person that you want to be. Another way of really putting it crudely is your convictions reflect your self-image. And right. that's why, um, you know, an attack on your convictions feels personal because, you know, it is. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so and then so... It how is it that beliefs become hardened into convictions? And you talk about this in the political realm, both with respect to the right and the left. You talk about climate change and association, association with the right. You talk about uh, beliefs about the benign nature of the Soviet Union in the mid 20th right. century on part of the left and how both uh -huh. of these are examples of how beliefs have become hardened into convictions and how if you're on, you're, if you are a member of the right, for example, you are not going to be maybe as rational when it comes to climate change because you see any counter evidence that goes against your beliefs with climate change kind of as an attack on your identity in the way that you were talking about. How do exactly. you say more about that process? Sure. So, uh, first of all, just one, one further point, too, that you just touched on is that part of this aspect of, of uh, one of the most salient facts about convictions is that my convictions have an authority of sorts over what I believe. They, because they reflect your self-identity, they, they, they make it, as it were, pragmatically rational or practically rational, rational from the standpoint of self-interest, to push away evidence that runs counter to them. And that's a really important fact about convictions. The process in which uh, Nietzsche, well, let me just put this, you know, Nietzsche said, something really interesting about convictions. What he said was that convictions have a history, uh, that what start out as convictions, what I start out as passing opinions can be hardened into convictions, as you put it. That process happens by a, a mechanism I call uh, uh, moral entanglement. Right. What I mean by that is that a belief, uh, an opinion even, can get caught up 
in a particular narrative, a story, uh, and, and often an ideological story about what the tribe represents. So, it, and once that happens, then almost any belief, no matter how on the face of it, it empirical or just as a sort of matter of fact it is, can end up taking on this identity reflecting aspect of conviction. So you mentioned climate change. So the idea that climate change is a hoax or it's not real, that's a, you know, on the face of it, that's like saying that this bridge is unsafe, right? Or, or it's a it's straightforward matter, right? Of empirical fact, right? Mm -hmm. Either the climate is changing or it ain't. Uh, either the bridge is safe or it ain't. But given the right circumstances, that belief can and in fact has become a matter of conviction for people because they think via this process of moral entanglement that if you were to to give it up, then giving that belief that belief up, that commitment up, that that conviction up, would end up undermining other aspects of this narrative or story that they are also committed to. So it's it's embedded into the web of their worldview and. Cutting it out, it would have grave ramifications for other things they think are important for who they are. And a great example of that uh, that you mentioned, and when I talk about in the book, on the left is, you know, uh, the left's uh, large part of the left was absolutely you know, a matter of faith that the Soviet Union was, yeah, you know, it had its problems, but all things being equal, it uh, represented a, a just form of government, particularly in the middle point, part of the 20th century. And as a result, um, you know, many intellectuals on the left refused to accept evidence that Stalin, for example, <laughs> was, was massacring large parts of the Soviet populace. Right. Okay, so in chapter, so just to talk a little more about the right and the left, and you give a chapter to each, right? So in chapter four, you talk about the roots of authoritarianism in the American right and the Trump age. And in chapter, I think five, you talk about identity politics. So I just have a question about each. I thought this discussion was extremely fascinating. So for me, um, I'm a liberal, but I come from a family that voted for Trump. And just to read a quote, so you, there are different narratives as to why Trump got elected. Some people think that it's mostly economic in nature. Other people think that it's cultural in nature, right? So just to briefly read a quote, you say, um, according to one side of the debate represented by political analyst Thomas Frank and others, a major reason that the Democrats lost the 2016 election is that they assume people were supporting Trump only out of racism and sexism. The thought is that this assumption led to two fundamental errors. First, by dismissing Trump supporters as deplorables, to use Hillary Clinton's notorious phrase, Progressive displayed an arrogant moral superiority that only served to galvanize the opposition. So for my family, that was the main reason. Um, it wasn't where I don't come from the working class, so it was mainly the cultural aspect of it. But then there's also the economic narrative. And one point that I thought was very profound that you make is how this is a false dilemma. It's not that you have to choose between the economic and the cultural explanation for why Trump won. So what do you mean when you say that? And how does that tie into the broader point that you're making in that chapter regarding authoritarianism? So um, let's start with authoritarianism. Yeah. Hannah Arendt uh, um, said um, rightly 
about 70 years ago in her book, The Origins of uh, Totalitarianism. She said that it's in the interest of, of mass leaders, she sometimes would use that phrase, authoritarian leaders, to cultivate in their followers uh, two, per, two attitudes, which are, their conjunction seems paradoxical, but really isn't. On the one hand, they want to cultivate in their followers a sense of uh, anxiety, of, of feeling under threat. Um, um, and the hand, security. What, what's, yeah, what's that? Insecurity. Yeah, exactly. On the other hand, they also want to uh, cultivate in their followers a sense of superiority, a sense that in some sense, yeah, we're under threat, but really uh, our side is got it figured out. We really are superior in some way. Now, that could be racial superiority or it could be cultural superiority. Uh, and usually that superiority is justified by appeal to a sort of glorious past. Um, Jason Stanley calls it the mythic past. Now, mm -hmm. why is that? Hold that in your head for a second, and let's return to the politics of today in 20th century or 21st century America. Um, yeah. Look, uh, the reason that the choice between this debate that's been going on on the left between, well, was it the economic or was it the cultural one, that's a false dilemma, is because both of those really can be, both of those explanations can be subsumed under one larger umbrella explanation, which is that large parts of the American populace are, for one reason, feeling that they're under threat. They're feeling under threat. Now, they may actually be under threat, or they just may be perceiving that they're under threat. That, the perception here is what matters, not reality. Yeah. Now, in some cases, that's because, you know, um, people, white people, for example, are, um, some white people are, 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 are worried about the fact that the demographics of the country are changing, that, that whites are no longer going to be, in a very short order, um, the the majority of the country of the of the electorate right it's actually that that's a, that is true i mean they're tracking the facts there right mm. and so that can cause people to feel anxious right right that that demographic demographics are changing and that can lead to racial anxiety which is the one explanation right but mm -hmm. there's sorts of uh, threats as well both sides of the demographics other threats are the threat the changing of the economy the economy has largely changed in the not around the just not just around the world, but uh, certainly in particular in the United States, and we all know that. This is the sort of those changes in the, the economy and the rise of inequality, uh, income inequality, is something that both Trump and Bernie Sanders, for example, were tracking, right? Yeah. And so that's the economic side, but that's a threat too, right? See, that also makes you feel anxious. One of the things that Trump was particularly good at was playing on people's anxiety, right? The thing about anxiety is it often becomes sort of free-floating, right? I mean, sometimes when you're in the middle of anxiety, political or otherwise, sometimes it's not really clear to you what the hell is making you anxious. Right. Because anxiety clouds your psychological profile. We all know this, right? Anytime you're feeling anxious, it's, it's like one of the things that really sucks about it is because you're not, you know, it, it clouds your decision-making <laughs> Well, in the philosophy of mind, some people think anxiety is a mental state that lacks intentionality. It's not about anything because right. it can be free-floating in this way. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, without getting into that debate, 
Yeah. You just simply say that it is the case that anxiety is often clouds its source. And so if you have a go back to now Hannah Arendt, who's saying that, look, authoritarian leaders throughout history have a deep motivation to cause anxiety in their um, in their followers, to not just cause it, of course, but often to reflect it. They'll see something that's really happening, and then they'll say, ah, let's build on that, and let's provoke it and deepen it. And at the same time, let's tell people a story that says to them, I know you're anxious, but actually, if you follow me, the person who's telling it like it is, I can relieve your anxiety, and I can, I can reassure you that you and our tribe really are, really are deserving of, of special treatment or power or, um, or any other particular goal that a leader might want us to achieve. Yeah. So pivoting now, so you don't just dissect the right, you also dissect the left. And so pivoting now to the left, another fascinating distinction that you make is this distinction between two kinds of identity politics, right? So you, you talk about how liberals are often seen as being arrogant and disdainful and uh, emitting an air of moral superior, su- superiority towards their opponents. And oftentimes that's linked to the fact of identity politics. Uh, but you make a distinction. You say, look, there are these two kinds of identity politics. There's a politics of recognition and a politics of tribalism. And oftentimes when people are talking about identity politics, they're implicitly or subtly conflating these two different kinds of identity politics. So could you just explain what that distinction is? Sure. Um, so most of the time when people are criticizing um, identity politics or sometimes even supporting it, they don't really often say what they mean by it. So that's one thing I think that in the general culture, the term is often not as defined as it should be in discussions uh, throughout the, the general culture uh, on the news, in the news media, for example. Um, but in fact, identity politics is there is a large literature of it, uh, about it. But uh, when you dig down in the literature, you realize that there really are two different types of things that people mean by identity politics. On the one hand, as you said, <clears throat> there's the, there's this idea that um, w- which w- I call recognition politics, which is the idea that you're engaged in recognition politics when you're engaged in advocating for uh, recognition of your particular social group. Um, that is recognition that the a they exist, the social group is a category. B that it it's it it deserves the same legal protections, uh, for example, as other groups. And or, you know, fighting against oppression of that group. Recognition politics is uh, a, sort of a traditional part of democratic politics. It's not something that is born with the left or the right. It, it goes back as far as democratic politics really, I think, uh, go back itself. Because right, that's explicitly linked to democratic ideals. The goal is to make everyone more equal. Exactly. As it applies to oppressed groups. Exactly. It's just in general to try to recognize that everybody has is should be equal under the law, which is what when we're talking politics is what we mean by equality. We mean equal under the law, treated equally um, by the state. Um, So, yeah, that's that's just, you know, caught up in democratic ideals. People mix that up with another idea, which is we call tribal politics, which is the idea that uh, I should be I'm advocating for my group 
to be have supremacy over the other groups. Actually, I'm advocating for my group as uh, in the same way I might advocate uh, in a in a wartime situation. So tribal politics sees politics really as war by other means. It's about one tribe versus another tribe, and your role in politics is to you know uh, beat the other tribe down and to gain power for yourself. Uh, that also has a long history. It goes back farther than democratic politics, so farther than recognition politics. It goes back, frankly, as far as human beings go back. Um, and it has its advocates from Machiavelli uh, uh, on down the line as being something that, you know, uh, is inevitable. Uh, that, uh, the, But it's very, very undemocratic. And I think when we're thinking about identity politics, we've got to realize that the left has grave problems with arrogance. Its problem, though, is not in recognition politics. The problem that the left has is sometimes falling into tribal politics, which is something, by the way, the right also falls into. Mm-hmm. More problematically, I think, with the left, even than anything to do with identity politics of either kind, is that the left ends up thinking that, and I fall victim to this myself in previous work, very tempting for those of us on the left to think that we're the, we're the party, the brand of facts and rationality, that somehow we are immune from implicit bias and prejudice, um, right. and we can rise above all these sorts of um, problems that other human beings fall into. We can't, and uh, it's, it's absolutely fundamentally problematic that sometimes the left talks as if we can. Yeah, so I think that might link to the final question that I have just to end. And someone reading this might say, you telling us that we're being intellectually arrogant, we need to reflect upon our fallibilities. That's not right because at this moment in history, because that can encourage the intolerance. And you, know, you say some people want the to use your phrasing, you say some people want to, quote, resist the use of democratic means towards undemocratic ends by using undemocratic means for democratic ends, which I think is a natural impulse. Like, look, these people are taking advantages of the liberties that we have in the West to push intolerance. So maybe we should um, use undemocratic means to make sure that we can safeguard those liberties. But at the end, near the end of the book, you say this actually isn't the way to go because it switches respect for our fellow man to contempt. So I thought maybe you could just end articulating that a bit further. Yeah. So I think this is a profound challenge that we're facing in our democracy and other democracies. Um, yeah. It, there is no doubt that um, it's important right now to speak up against proto-fascism, against uh, the rise of white supremacism, uh, against the movements, violent often movements of nationalism moving around the the globe. These are dangerous political movements and protesting them, speaking up against them and speaking out against them, as I'm doing right now, is absolutely politically, democratically essential from my point of view. On the other hand, I think that we, we, I am one of those philosophers, um, and this is a contentious issue in politics and political theory, but I'm one of those philosophers that with Dewey thinks that if we end up using undemocratic means for our democratic ends, our democratic ends will slowly slip away and become undemocratic, possibly without our noticing it. 
Uh, I think I agree with that. And I think that means that we're that that is a precarious that puts us in a precarious situation because it it means that we we may have to uh, not let's say um, engage in certain types of actions that we might otherwise want to engage in. Um, it puts us in a dangerous situation sometimes because we may feel like um, it may happen that uh, while we're trying to engage and you know be democratic, that the authoritarians and the nationalists uh, win the day. I hope that that doesn't happen, but I also fear that if we end up refusing to reflect on ourselves, refusing to to try to you know reach for our better the angels of our better nature, uh, we'll end up in a place that may be indistinguishable from the the very dark place that we're trying to avoid now. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end it. Um, thank you again. I, I'll uh, attach a link to your book in the podcast description, and I think everyone should go read it because I found it very helpful for me personally in navigating this crazy digital economy that we're all embedded in. Thanks so much. Good talking to you, Cody.